Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on the five-year engagement, the new Jason Siegel Emily Blunt romantic comedy. And here with me to talk about the five-year engagement is Pamela Paul. Hi, Pamela. Hey. You are an editor at the New York Times Book Review and also a favorite spoiler companion of mine. And especially on movies like this, for some reason, I always, I'm sorry to tell you, want you in tow when I see a slightly dopey romantic comedy because I know you're always going to have things to say about it. And this movie in particular, we came out of it last night. I don't think either of us loved it, but you were saying, oh, there's so much to say. I can't wait to tell you our spoiler. And I was thinking, thank God she's coming because I feel like I've seen this movie or its equivalent 10 times in the past two years. We see and a lot it, of end of trend stories together, films together, don't we? You mean like the last dying gas? Exactly. We right. hope. Because the last thing we saw together and spoiled, I believe, was that horrible, horrible Jason Bateman, who else was in it? Ryan Reynolds' body switch comedy, right? Right, Didn't I change up. with you? Yes. Which I've just blotted out all memory of <laughs> because it was so bad. Last Jason Bateman rom-com for a while. But do you really think that this is going to be the end of an era? So this is, let's, let's, let's sort of specify what era or what, what genre we're talking about right here, or subgenre of romantic comedy. It's the, it's the Jason Siegel co-written and Jason Siegel starring um, sort of somewhat formless and sweet romantic comedy, right? So Forgetting Sarah Marshall is one of these as well. Get Him to the Greek is one of them as well. Right. It's sort of like soft Judd Apatow. Really, you know, it's sort of Judd Apatow without the huge gross out. Um, it's the, it, you know, Jason Siegel. I feel like is like the girlish or, or like the less um, the girl friendly Judd Apatow star, don't right. you? As opposed to Seth Rogen, you mean who's a little bit like more more uh, alienating exactly. to women. Although I happen to still have a soft spot for Seth Rogen. Anyway, okay, so. The five-year engagement, let's get through. It's really sort of all in the title, but let's get through a really quick thumbnail plot synopsis, and then we can get to some spoiling and some some analysis. So um, so Jason Siegel and Emily Blunt play this couple who, as the movie begins, are getting engaged and, um, and looking back at the New Year's party where they met, right? They live in San Francisco. He's a chef. They have such rom-com jobs. He's a, a successful sous chef on his way up, right? Yes, although I feel like her job was not rom-com because she's an academic um, and um, trying to get a job in academic. Academia, which is, I don't know when the last time I saw a romantic comedy with this kind of intellectual... Now, you're right. There might be somebody who was a professor already in a rom-com, like one that was aimed at older people, like a Diane Keaton rom-com or something. But there, you don't see anyone in the process of becoming a professor because it's it's not pretty, right? It's sort of too hideous. And one thing that is fairly realistic, surprisingly, is um, is, is the job process of what it is to become an academic and get a tenure-track job, right? Yes. And I, th- I mean, I think we could go off track here and, and talk about the fact that it – it bills itself as a romantic comedy, but in a way, it's really a lot more about work than it is about romance, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, but in order to say why, let's do a quick synopsis. So, so exactly, it is about work and about the way work can drive couples apart and you know sort of create obstacles to their happiness. So, as the movie begins, he's this sous chef at a San Francisco restaurant. She, I guess, has just finished her PhD because she's looking for postdocs in psychology, right? Behavioral psychology, or right? Something and like she's that. trying to get into Berkeley so that they can stay in San Francisco and have this you know launch this dream life together. 
but instead she gets into the University of Michigan, also a very good school, but he doesn't want to go at all. And then the rest of the movie essentially is about where will they live and what will he find to do. He kind of trails along as this spouse-to-be who doesn't have any job in Michigan. And then maybe I wouldn't be surprised if if Ann Arborites don't take offense at this, but it's sort of shown as this backwater town where he can't possibly get a job and he has to work at this deli, right? He has to make sandwiches at a deli essentially instead of being this foodie genius chef who was about to get his own restaurant uh, while she works in the psychology department at University of Michigan. So what are some of the subplots here? I've already blocked them out, but this is one of those romantic <laughs> comedies that has a lot of supporting players that, to me, just sort of exist. Underused. Yeah, just to, to provide contrasts and foils for, for the main two. But who are some of those? Talk me well, through. so you've got Emily Blunt and Jason Siegel are the main pairing. And then the sort of B-list pairing is um, Alison Brie, who was fantastic, really, as Emily Blunt's um, older sister, it seems, um, who initially resents the fact that Emily Blunt's character, um, whose name is Violet, Violet, um, (laughs) uh, is getting married before her. Um, But she ends up with Chris Pratt, who plays uh, the sort of uh, schlubby second tier chef to Jason Segal's chef. Sort of a Rogan-esque role, right? I mean, it's the kind of role you could see Seth Rogen in. It's like the the foul-mouthed buddy to um, to Jason Segel. Right. And in fact, in, in the the very beginning of the movie, their story, Chris Pratt's and what's her name, Allison Bree's story, kicks off by them having a one night stand at the engagement party for her sister and Jason Segel, and she gets pregnant. And so the two of them end up getting married and raising two kids together. And so in the background, as we have this five year engagement dragging on, and Emily Blunt and Jason Segel bickering over this and that, and not being able to set a date and not being able to decide if they're getting married at all, you see this other couple that got thrown together by pure chance and bad birth control. Right. And making then there's a sort of life together. flip of four weddings and a funeral because there's four funerals and a wedding that end up delaying the wedding. Oh, look at you. Look at it. <laughs> As the grandparents, you know, who are waiting for Emily Blunt to tie the knot, uh, die off one by one. And that kind of marks the passage of time. So first we have the wedding and then we have the funerals of these um, various grandparents that tick off the passage of time during which Emily Blunt and Jason Siegel are not getting married. But in Instead, living in Michigan, where he is unable to get a job and sort of goes off the, you know, deep end. And then this is where this is what I thought the movie was really about, which was not romance at all, but about the, um, I mean, anguished role of men today and what happens when the, you know, it's sort of Liza Mundy's The Richer Sex, you know, turned into a a rom-com because she is the one with the career and he has no idea where he's going. He sort of starts floundering around and searching for some sense of manhood. He he starts hunting. um, He hangs out with a stay-at-home dad um, and he's sort of trying on these various... um, sort of masculine, you know, costumes to see which fits. Right. Yeah. And in fact, the vision of conflicted masculinity that the film comes up with is, is pretty interesting and funny in its way. I mean, funnier than most of the jokes in the movie, I think, are is just sort of like the, the, the mishmash of, of images that he comes up with for what a man should be. So he grows these sideburns, kind of Grizzly Adams style, over the years in Michigan, and he starts hunting. But at the same time, he also starts wearing these strange hand-knitted sweaters made by his friend, the stay-at-home dad. And being sort of like a little bit sort of fruity as well, sort of like a man who runs with the wolves or something like that. So he's this kind of combination of a masculine. 
emasculated and hypermasculine and kind of off the grid, and nobody knows kind of what to do with him. Right. He's totally emasculated. And at times he voices this. I mean, there's this um, fight that they have in bed where he admits that he's unhappy only after heavy prodding. I from, thought that was a really good scene, actually. It was a really good scene. And eventually he says, you know, um, where I'm a man. I don't talk about my feelings. Um, and I really felt like that was that was sort of a key line um, to the film. Of course, the other key line came towards the very end um, in which he says, and again, I really feel like capturing this whole idea, he says, you've made me the happiest girl in the world. When she finally proposes to him, right? right. At the very end. Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel like there was a cop-out at the end of this movie. I liked some of the stuff in the middle that happened in Michigan. There were actual moments where shock of all shocks in a mainstream romantic comedy, something felt true to life and like a conversation you might actually have, have experienced or, or, you know, talked to a friend about experiencing. Like some of those moments when, you know, she tells him, for example, that the postdoc has been extended. That's what starts that fight where they're lying in bed. And his kind of crazy passive-aggressive reaction of, I want to be alone, but then not letting her leave the room. You know, I thought some of those those moments were that kind of That was totally real sweet. to me. Yeah. And I think Siegel is good at scripting that kind of stuff, which he does in, in Forgetting Sarah Marshall very well, right. too, where it's not just, you know... Um, uh, the man battening down on his position and the woman on hers and, you know, let's explore how different the genders are or something. But two people kind of, you know, sloppily trying to have a fight with each other while dragging all of their vanities and all of their, their weaknesses along right. with them. And the problem with bringing in this kind of meandering, true-to-life, realistic, you know, never-ending, cohabiting couple bickering is how do you tie it up in a rom-com way? And I think that's where the movie really um, fell into deep cliché mode where, you know, you just... It wasn't running to the airport, but they were running. Well, there was the classic third act separation, right? I feel like even more key than the running to the airport is that there has to be this moment in, you know, the last third of every romantic comedy where the people have been separated either by their own choice, as in this case, or by some kind of circumstance. And haircut symbolizes the... Oh, uh... yeah, you're right. She gets bangs. There's a, there's a makeover bang haircut for Emily Blunt. And then there's just a moment that we see them in their separate cities and we hear a pop song. In this case, it's, it's Van Morrison, or I think it's somebody covering a Van Morrison song, who's sort of like the musical patron saint of this movie. You know, they fall in love to a Van Morrison song and eventually play one at their wedding, and it's kind of this this whole theme running through. But yeah, there has to be that separation montage in the third act, and I really started to to lose it with the movie at that point. I wish... And this is this is actually just a sadness about the industry as much as this movie. But I, I wish that this movie had been able to have the courage of its wishy-washy convictions and be a little bit about a meandering relationship. And a tiny part of me hoped when they kept putting off the date and not being able to decide on what kind of wedding and cards and, you know, whatever, all of the kind of accoutrements of, of weddinghood, that maybe they would either not get married at the end and happily keep cohabiting. Or maybe they would say you know, let's just go to a justice of the peace and elope and it totally doesn't matter. And instead, at the end, I felt like the movie tried to have it both ways. So they do get married at the end, of course, because it's ultimately a conventional, conservative, mainstream romantic comedy. And they even kind of get married in a cute and fancy fashion, right? Although they don't resolve the job situation, really, which I thought was interesting. They they have um, Jason Segel's character ends up, you know, sort of finding himself and finding this new, um, you know, chef of the future role. Um, but they don't really show what happens with Emily Blunt's character. And I thought it was really interesting that um, that they couldn't do that. Um, they could show, and again, this I also thought was very interesting, just gender politics-wise, that um, there's this scene in which Emily Blunt's character finds out that she has gotten a tenure-track position only by dint of the fact that she's sleeping with the head of the department. Right. And so she then turns down the job because that's not, you know, that's not good enough for her. Whereas I feel like sadly in real life, some people would might, you know, 
there might be cases in which people say, well, you know, I got it for the wrong reasons, but, you know, damn it, I'm taking it. Well, not to mention the fact that the person who tells her she got the job because she's sleeping with the head of the department is the head of the department. So consider the source, right? I mean, couldn't she just say, oh, well, he's resentful and doesn't recognize my true accomplishments. And so I'm going to break up with him, but take the job, right? Yes. But let's be, I mean, I think we should be fair. I actually, I, I probably liked the movie more than you did. Um, I did think That's that... That's funny because you never laughed out loud during it. I thought you were just sitting there waiting for it to be over. The <laughs> no, I laughed at all the silly slapsticks parts, um, which I'm always embarrassed to laugh at too loudly. Um, but, uh, and of course, there were many of those, including the, you know, de rigueur scene of the female lead getting, you know, slammed in the face and Which you were down. saying is a Julia Roberts? Yeah, inheritance? it's like the legacy of Julia Roberts that they have to you know, bang up the woman in some, you know, comedic fashion. Although, to be fair, again, they banged up Jason Siegel. I feel like he, again, he's sort of this, um, he's like the, the, the new Alan Alda or something, you know, but in a, I think, a much better way in that he's kind of the new man, you know, he is, he is, um, he, I, you know, I think he's lucky because he's a really big guy, and so he never seems too effeminate, even when they strip him of all of the you know luxuries of of masculine power. Uh, but he has that soft, lovable quality, uh, and I think that the casting overall was really good. I thought you know it's great to see Emily Blunt um, in a lead role, um, and you know she and Jason Siegel are obviously good looking, but slightly off kilter. Um, I think they underused a lot of the secondary actors. I mean. Mindy Kaling didn't have a single, you know, giggle uh, sort of inducing line until maybe the very end. Um, Yeah, you're right. She had to just she had to get by with her deadpan looks or whatever. I still liked her in it, but very, very underused. And in general, not as much of a sense for me, again, using Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I'm now holding up as this pantheon, but I do like Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And I think it gets away with a lot of the stuff that this movie doesn't. Um, So, for example, the secondary characters in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, if you think of Paul Rudd's, you know, stoned surf instructor or something like that, they're really great, vivid, small sketches of characters in a way that like the Chris Pratt or the Mindy Kaling characters don't manage to be. Although Alison Brie was very good. Alison Brie, who of course is Trudy on Mad Men as the sister, I thought, playing British really convincingly, not just with her accent, but also with her whole carriage of sort of being the sort of slightly duckish kind of awkward British beauty. Yeah, completely believable. And completely believable is Emily Blunt's sister as well. I still think, though, that her character was a little underwritten and that all she and Pratt really served for was, you know, let's look at the at the opposite, you know, the inverse Right, right, the Leslie Mann role. Pamela, let me just stop you there for one minute for a word from our sponsor this week. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. They have more than 100,000 titles, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're using to listen to this podcast right now. And right now, Audible has a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So you can choose your free title from their huge library of selections, including everything from classics to New York Times bestsellers. But I have one suggestion for a book that might interest spoiler listeners in particular, especially if you tune in to listen to this podcast on romantic comedy. This is actually a, um, a book that I endorsed on the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Pamela, a few weeks ago. We do endorsements at the end of the show and talk about what we're reading or listening to or loving in the culture that week. And so one of my choices a few weeks ago on the Gab Fest was I Capture the Castle, which is this young girl's novel, I guess you would say, maybe a novel for teenagers and girls in their 20s. Um, that was written in the 1940s, I think, by Dodie Smith, the British author who also wrote 101 Dalmatians. She's a fantastic writer, by the way. 101 Dalmatians is a very underrated book as well. But I Capture the Castle is about these two young girls, one of whom was played by Anne Hathaway in the movie, could have been played by Emily Blunt. Uh, 
who are growing up in a kind of dilapidated castle with their impoverished novelist father in England, and it's about their romantic travails and the boys they fall in love with. And I won't give too much away, but it's really, really great listening. And uh, they have it unabridged on Audible. And the book is read by Jenny Agutter, who I don't know if you know her. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but she's a wonderful British actress who um, appeared most notably in the, uh, the Australian movie Walkabout, the Nicholas Rogue movie. So if you're looking for something to listen to on Audible, try I Capture the Castle. You can find that at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Anyway, so, you know, I I said earlier that this is kind of end of trend, but... You know, I think that this type of movie is actually like it captures a lot of things that were in Bridesmaids, of course, in terms of our ambivalence about weddings and about romantic comedies that I think is is very Gen X-y in a way. This sort of, um, oh, this is like incredibly maudlin and ridiculous. And yet it's adorable. And there's a scene where Chris Pratt and... um, and uh, Alison, Alison Brie's characters get married, and he sings this, you know, to her in this over-the-top, um, you know, Spanish uh, language, this like Mexican love ballad. And um, we're meant to sort of look at it first and laugh at him, but then be sort of swept away and won over by the emotion. And I think that um, that's that that type of. Um, you know, we're really suspicious of all of these rom-com tropes, and yet we kind of embrace them thing that was in Bridesmaids as well. I think that that's kind of, uh, that's not going to go away. Yeah, see, I, I really, I wish that somebody you would wish have, it would? <laughs> kind of, I mean, maybe not for good everywhere. I also still like a good Shakespearean comedy where everyone's married off and happy in the end. But if it's going to be a, a movie about ambivalence in the way this one is, and about, you know, the, the, the difficulty of defining your relationship, right? And, uh, and, and some people's difficulty in sort of ever getting the whole marriage concept off the ground. I mean, there are people who never do get it off the ground and never do get married. And it sort of seemed like this couple was maybe in that mode. And even if the end had been sort of this promising, hopeful, ambiguous, you know, let's try it again kind of thing. Or I don't know, just some hint that they might. And there might have been a funny kind of irony to the end if there'd been some hint like, oh, God, are we going to start picking up cardstock again or something? But instead, it all sort of had to come together with this perfect, cute wedding scene. And I guess it depresses me a little bit that the extent to which the romantic comedy in Hollywood still has to believe in, you know, just the heteronormative white wedding. You know, you know what would feel really revolutionary at this point would be to have, you know, like the rom-coms of the 30s and the 40s, where you actually aspire to be like one of the people in the in the uh, in the couple um, to actually have that again because I think that um, really for like the last decade at least all of these romantic comedies are more obsessed with you know kind of squashing quashing down the lead character so that they're relatable and that they are you know uh, full of problems and that you know while yes they're sort of cute and lovable like they're both really totally neurotic wrecks um, and it seems like we've just gone completely away from the idea of like I would love to marry him right but where would the conflict come in a movie like that? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I would all sort of argue that going way back in time, romantic comedies have kind of worked on flawed, ridiculous characters. I mean, Annie Hall certainly does, right? That's certainly two neurotic wrecks trying to get it together. But in Annie Hall, they don't get it together, right? And, and I think one of the reasons that we remember Annie Hall kind of as this groundbreaking romantic comedy is that it's about the, lo- the kind of rueful loss of a relationship and, and life going on. Right. The, the lost, unhappy ending. 
Right, yeah. This movie, I feel like the unhappy ending is compensatory and anxious, kind of in the way that, that Jason Siegel's masculinity is, you know, in yeah. the middle of the movie. It was primed for an unhappy ending, and we were so unhappy that it didn't end unhappily. Maybe the next one. I still I still have faith in Jason Siegel as a writer as well as an actor. I think he's really um, pretty great as a comedy writer when he's not forcing himself into boxes. I just don't know if there's room to make a movie that isn't forced into those boxes, you know, in this in this genre right now. You know, one last thing is that I read um, recently that, that Jason Siegel had to lose 35 pounds for this role, which again I just feel like um, in the in the larger world is is that theme of the men becoming the girls. You mean that he he is also being put through the ringer and his his physical appearance has exactly. to be. Yeah, maybe maybe that is true. It's then a again, total reversal. Then again, I'm also really sick of the the schlub plus incredibly trim and fit woman kind of syndrome. So you know maybe maybe he should keep it up. I like Jason Siegel both ways, actually. I guess he's a little heavier in, in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, but I love his naked scene at the beginning of that movie. This and he gets naked in this, too. This turning into an ad for Forgetting Sarah Marshall. <laughs> Not as naked, though, right? There's no frontal. No, but he did show his ass. That's true. He in an apron. Resist. All right. Well, Pamela, this is really fun. Thank you for coming in. And please come in next time, whether it's a dopey romantic comedy or not. I would love that. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.